whose Pilgrim's Progress, well, I don't know current statistics, but I think, at least for a long time, second only to Scripture and publication in the English language, but um, it would break into poetry even in that work, and um, just that phrase, to be a pilgrim. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians this morning, chapter 4. I want to break from our series in Romans. Um, I know it is the 15th of January, am I correct there? So we're halfway through the month, but this is my first Lord's Day with you here. And I've had from two directions, really, this portion of Scripture in the last week and a half brought to my attention and to my heart. So I want to speak from this familiar chapter and perhaps one that as we read it, you'll see several phrases that are most familiar, and I would suggest many that are worthy to commit to memory. But 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read the chapter together. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the Word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair persecuted but not forsaken, cast down but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. We, having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Knowing that He which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Well, amen. We trust the Lord again to add His blessing to the public reading 
of His Word. Let's bow our heads and hearts once again together. Our Heavenly Father, as we again have come under the public reading of Scripture, we pray that even hearing again these inspired words, that they will be taken up by Your Spirit. Lord, help us by our meditations upon them. But Lord, just at their reading, let the impact be felt and real. And give us grace to present them and for all of us to act upon them. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, as I said, this particular portion of Scripture has come my way, if you will, from a couple different directions over the last several days. I was taken with it, I think it perhaps was during one of the prayer times with the ministers, and just thought of sharing some portion of this with our brother Greg as I sought to visit him when I came home, as you know, our brother is near death and declining health. And of course, some of those phrases, and we'll look at them in a little while, uh, were fresh on my mind and heart to share again with our brother. But then, not very many hours after arriving home, we had a minister's or a presbytery prayer meeting scheduled by Zoom, and our current moderator, Reverend Jeff Bannister, was speaking from this particular portion. I missed the introduction to a sermon, and that's simply because I was going through my emails on Tuesday morning after I had slept in a little bit from the travels. And in one of the emails, it was a reminder about the minister's prayer time by Zoom that started 11 minutes ago. So I logged in and, well, missed the introduction. But I think he was either drawing from or perhaps completely stealing a message from C.H. Spurgeon with regard to ministers and speaking about their fainting fits. And, of course, prominent text, really both at the opening of the chapter and then from verse 16 for which cause we faint not. Challenges to ministers, to be sure, and even the context of Paul's own ministry that's so much to the surface in this passage was, well, very applicable to the ministers and our own needs. But these couple of directions, or the passage coming to me from a couple of different directions, and some thoughts in particular that I thought would be fitting for us as we approach yet another year, and a year as we've seen in recent years, perhaps filled with unknown troubles, certainly with declension, unless the Lord wonderfully intervene in revival, a declining season to be sure in our nation and in this world. If I had to put a theme or a title to what I want to suggest to you today from this portion of Scripture, Well, it's one of those times that I want to put something a little catchy before you, which isn't my normal practice. But I want to fix the thought, at least, for you today with the question, what are you looking at? Now, we can the tone of voice uh, in a personal conversation and self-defense or seeking to put somebody else down, perhaps. Um, I don't know that I gave it that inflection in speaking it. But yet... Without that context, and certainly without those inflections, the passage puts before us something of that pilgrim journey we've just sung of in Bunyan's presentation. What are we looking at? 
what captures our attention. We even have used the phrase often over the years that the world must have in many ways our attention, but it must never have our affections. Our affections are to be set on things above. Well, that's what we're supposed to be looking at. Things that are above. And I put that before you in a time in which our world, as you know, is quite visible to us. It is out there in every way it can be out there. It confronts us, it bombards us in many ways, ways that our preceding generations, not even very long ago, some of us with any years on us at all, before the advent of the cell phone, or not the cell phone, but the smartphone, we can imagine and remember times where the world wasn't quite as ready at hand. It wasn't in our face, as it were, constantly. And I think Paul's relating of his experience in this chapter is a fitting meditation for us in the coming year to just keep that question before ourselves. What am I looking at? What has my attention? What has my affections? What am I focusing on? What am I allowing to influence I want to look in some ways at the whole chapter, but I really want to draw our thoughts from the closing three verses of the chapter. If you look at verse 16, 17, and 18 again to read them with me. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Like I said, to use these three verses as the focus for three thoughts, but to to draw from the whole chapter together. From verse 16, can I present to you just the thought of our inevitable experience here in this world? Now Paul, if you read through the opening part of the chapter, is giving some autobiographical information. 2 Corinthians, many argue, and I think quite fittingly, is the most autobiographical of all of Paul's epistles. We see Paul on display Uh, You think of the conflict and the different issues and troubles that had been part of his relationship and his correspondence with the Corinthian church. Uh, He had sin that was present in the congregation. We read from 1 Corinthians this morning that presence of a notable uh, immorality, an incestuous relationship that wasn't merely present in the church, but it was being accepted. It was actually being gloried in. You're puffed up, he said and have not rather mourned. Should have been some discipline here, not puffing this thing up. So Paul's interaction with the Corinthians was difficult, and there were a lot of issues and problems, and he becomes exposed, and he has to engage in at times some very uncomfortable, I don't even know if self-promotion is the right way, but self-defense. Very often we engage in a defensive posture in a wrong way, in a fleshly way. 
But Paul's having to defend his apostolic office. He's having to defend the truth that he's taught and so forth. And so his experience, and again, these autobiographical references that he speaks of to the Corinthians are a window into his life that is somewhat rare in the other epistles. And we can look at these and we can understand, well, Paul, he's an apostle. Uh, the life he lived, the job he's given to do, the problems he had resulting from that position as an apostle, that's not us. And that's true. None of us are apostles. Very few of us are called to active ministry. So those aspects of his testimony and his experience don't belong to all of us. But yet they're pieces of that. The representatives of the Gospel... Leaders in the church may be the tip of the spears, it's said sometimes, but yet the experiences are common. We're all strangers and pilgrims in a world that is not a friend to grace. Borrow Watts' words, is this vile world a friend to grace to lead me on to God? The obvious answer is no. And so I say it's our inevitable experience as believers that we're pilgrims. Our citizenship isn't here. Our citizenship is above. And so we are, by definition, different than the people we live among in the world. And if you look at Paul's experiences in those opening verses, those opening four verses, You see Paul's integrity in his ministry with a contrast to those that are deceitful handlers of Scripture. That's something always to keep in mind. The world and false teaching and the flesh doesn't merely come. People saying, hi, I'm a humanist or I'm from the devil and I'm here to destroy you. There's a subtlety to false teaching. And our Lord even gave warning of that in His Olivet Discourse with regard to the days of His nearing His second coming. Many, He said, would come in His name and deceive. And Paul comes to have to defend himself and his integrity in ministry with regard to or in contrast to those that handle the Word of God deceitfully. But when you come to verses 3-5 to here, this contrast between the world and the believer is put on stark display. There are actually frightening words here with regard to the natural condition of the human heart. To the total depravity of our fallen hearts and minds. We read from verse 3, but if our Gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost in whom The God of this world, and of course we find throughout the New Testament that description of Satan here, the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And I say these are frightening words with regard to depravity. But this is a description of those that are outside of Christ. It's not a description of the odd person that you might hear about in the evening news that you'll never come in contact with, hopefully. It's a description of the lost. It's a description of every man 
that's outside of Christ. He doesn't only have a fallen and depraved heart that's antagonistic to God. As Paul described in Romans 7, that heart that's contrary to the law, that even once it hears the law, is stirred up to go further away from the law. But there's a blindness that belongs to them that is also foisted upon them from outside. The devil, the God of this world, blinding their minds. We're talking today about what are you looking at? What is the world? What are those whose hearts and minds are blinded by the flesh and by the devil looking at? They're looking at the things that are seen. They're looking at the stuff that characterizes the fallen world. If you ever do word studies, you have in times past in Sunday school classes and so forth, looked at the words for world in the New Testament. Well, one of the most common words, and it comes up in a lot of those passages we as Calvinists have to work through, but the cosmos. And we talk about that when we look at the heavens and so forth. But the word has to do with orderly arrangement. That's why it's part of cosmetics. Women use cosmetics to bring an orderly arrangement to, I don't know, the eyelashes, the blush, whatever, you know what these things are. Well, what is true of the world? What Orderly arrangement belongs to those that are lost. Whose minds are blinded by the devil. They walk contrary to God. The general tenor of their lives is not Gospel. The general tenor of their lives is not in obedience to God's law. We can look through history and we see seasons of what we talk about as common grace. When culture isn't as outwardly depraved, outwardly wicked, thus outwardly as violent as other times. But when God removes His hand of restraint, and understand even in the days of the the highest blessing, if you will, of common grace, of a culture that's impacted by truth, those that are lost are still blind. It's just a mere conformity with what's going on out there, but then you can whittle away at that. And when you suppress truth, I preached in several of the prayer meetings last week in Northern Ireland, that series I did a year or so ago on truth has fallen in the streets. I did all five messages from one prayer meeting. They weren't overly long prayer meetings, but Days as we've seen truth fallen in the streets. One of the common denominators of such evil times and these horrific things that we can just pick examples of sadly from the news every week, they result from people turning their back on truth. Possessing truth. Having light and then suppressing it. and Suppressing it yet more. God then giving them over to that reprobate mind. Here's a description of those that are outside of Christ. 
And I say a fearful commentary on the depravity that it is in them that the God of this world hath blinded their minds. But this part of our inevitable experience that makes us different from the world is that he continues and says, lest the light of the glorious Gospel of Christ who is the image of God should shine unto them. And then his mission, for we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. What a gospel statement. And I ask you, believer, to think in your own experience. Isn't that a description of regeneration? For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. You hear people give testimony of the times when they were outside of Christ and their worldly friends and their worldly endeavors. And there comes a point in which the conviction of the Spirit of God, God wrestling with their hearts, God commanding the light to shine out of darkness, shining in their hearts. And their friends come and say, something's changed about you. You don't think the way you used to think. You're not running with us the way you used to run with us. What a picture of the Gospel here. God has commanded the light to shine out of darkness. He hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I love that text. It's a text that Dr. Cairns put before us quite powerfully in our systematic theology class, interestingly, in the introduction to theology and the whole framework of our study. The Reformed theologians can debate back and forth about a Trinitarian approach to theology, which is, sounds sound and reasonable and solid enough to be sure. But Dr. Cairns argued I don't even think you would say instead of that. I think it would be better to say beyond that. A Christological approach to our study of Scripture and of all theology. Because while the triune God, of course, is the foundation, and of course in theology that's the study of God, but how do we know God? How can we ever come to know God? Come to know anything about God. We're completely alienated and cut off. The point of contact always has to be Christ. The one mediator between God and men. And so here when we want to have anything of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where is it found? In the face of Jesus Christ. And of course that, can we say, beginning point of this inevitable experience that is one of a difference between us and the world. It begins when our eyes are opened. When we're born again. When we enter new life. When we enter more exactly life from death. Because outside of Christ, even though people are walking around and living and breathing and have a pulse and active brain waves, they're dead. You who were dead 
in trespasses and sins. In every meaningful way, those outside of Christ are dead. They just haven't entered into the full experience of death yet. The same way as we that are regenerated, we that are believers are alive, but we haven't entered into the full experience of what it means to be alive yet. To be glorified and in the presence of God. But I say the inevitable experience that is that of walking differently, of being different than the world, it's because we are born again. There's life in us, whereas there's death working in those that surround us every day. That organized principle of the world. We come to the 17th verse for our second thought and heading today. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Obviously, this verse came to mind. I've been actually quite surprised visiting our brother Greg each week along the way these many months trying to bring different Scriptures to him each visit. How many Scriptures throughout Old and New Testament, different contexts, different particular themes, and yet how often they bring us to the eternal day. I spoke in one of the churches in Northern Ireland. I was asked to bring a missionary message. We brought a lot of missionary messages at missions conferences, but that's what this was, a missions conference. And so they asked for that theme. Well, I'd preach to the men on a survey of the church at Ephesus through the New Testament. Different windows we have into the experience of that church and covering into the second generation when you come to Revelation 2. And there's a text in 2 Timothy where Paul makes the phrase, all they which are in Asia are turned away from me. And How to reconcile that with the fact that there can't be apostasy there because that's only eight years after Paul left Ephesus. And yet, 40 years after Paul left Ephesus, we read in Revelation 2 that the church is praised for its orthodoxy. It's rebuked for its lack of love, but it's praised for its orthodoxy. So Paul's not talking about apostasy there when he says they were departed from him and well if you work through the context it appears that there were some in Ephesus that should have appeared with Paul in Rome to give testimony in his trial who would be able to give some evidence as to who and what he was and what he went about doing remember it was Jews from Ephesus or Jews from Asia it's phrased in Acts that stirred up the mob in Jerusalem that had gotten Paul arrested in the first place well, all that to say, there's a little footnote to that in Timothy where Paul said the others were turned aside from him. And he says, but God grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. For he oft refreshed me. He wasn't afraid, ashamed of my chain. When he's in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. And just looking at Onesiphorus and his ministry is what is the foundation of my little missions message to that one service. But what was in the middle of that? It says, The Lord grant 
him mercy of the Lord in that day. Again, so many places in Scripture that point us to the future day. To contrast this day with that day. And when you look here in our context in verse 17, Paul speaks in memorable language. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Well, look at who's writing this. Read later in this book, see the catalog of trials and troubles, persecutions, storms, shipwrecks. I often think about the phrase, he says, the perils of the city and the perils of the wilderness. Very different. There'll be times you were in the wilderness and, and you wish you had some of the comforts and the help of the city. Maybe some water that was drinkable. Maybe some place to get some food. Maybe some place where the wild animals weren't getting ready to take you out. And then you can be in the city. And the perils Paul faced in some of those places. It would have been quite pleasant to have been transported from the middle of those mobs to some wilderness location to be sure. Well, Paul had an abundance of trials. And he speaks of them as a light affliction, which is but for a moment. I've always been taken. If you consider verse 17 from Paul's perspective, from the believer's perspective, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I think I shared this with you at one point, but I'll just repeat myself if you remember such a thing. I, we were assigned somewhat of this context in homiletics when I was in seminary. And I had the ingenious thought of taking verse 17 not with reference to Paul or the believer, but with reference to the world and contrasting that with the believer. And I must have made some serious mistakes homiletically, and my outline was uh, not easy to follow. Because uh, Dr. Cairns didn't seem to be impressed with my genius that day. But the reality is still there. Everything Paul says of himself here, the exact opposite is true of the ungodly. Paul talks about his afflictions, and he refers to them as light and momentary. Now that in itself is amazing when we consider the lifelong afflictions Paul endured. But his afflictions are light and momentary. But the glory that would be revealed in him in the eternal day is going to be weighty, and it's going to be eternal. And I say the exact opposite is true of the unsaved. Their glory, the things they glory in, and Paul phrases elsewhere, who glory in their shame, their glories are light and momentary. But their affliction is weighty and it's eternal. And I say here is an indescribable contrast between the ungodly 
and the believer. Now the problem is, it comes down to what are we looking at? Because if we're looking only at things that are visible, then we're going to fall into the same trap that Asaph did in Psalm 73. God's truly good to Israel. But as for me, my feet had well nigh slipped. I was envious at the foolish when I saw, I was looking at the prosperity of the wicked. And he begins to catalog all the thoughts as he's looking at the unsaved. And, you know, life's easy for them. They're not swimming upstream like a Christian is all the time. And he finally comes, and it's interesting, he says, not until I went into the house of God, then understood I their end. God met with me through the means of grace and helped me to get looking at the right thing. And here, to understand, and Asaph did in the psalm. Their glories are they're light. They're temporary. The glory of the believer is eternal. Weighty. It's real. It's not just some shallow, fake spurt of happiness. No, it's real joy. It's real contentment. They're real pleasures forevermore. It's an indescribable contrast when you are looking in the right place. When you're not allowing your mind and heart to be blinded by the God of this world. When you're not allowing yourself to follow the thinking and the vision what the unsaved are seeing, what they're looking at. Well, how do we come to understand as Asaph did? How do we come with Paul to see this indescribable contrast? Well, the last thought from verse 18, and of course everything has led up to this, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Here is an indispensable perspective. It's not easy. We can go further and say it's not even possible for the flesh. The flesh can only see what's visible. What a shame that its sight is so limited. What do we read in Hebrews 11? That catalog of those that were pilgrims with Bunyan, whose faithful lives, whatever their different experiences had been, experiences of blessing and revival, or experiences of hardship and martyrdom, they walked by faith. As he says, seeing Him who is invisible. That's what they were looking at. That's what allowed them to rise above the circumstances and the conditions of the world that surrounded them. They could understand 
them being taken captive by the devil at his will. What a fearful thing. One who's a murderer and a liar from the beginning, whose design is the death of you. To believe Him. To take in what He's putting in front of you. To see only what He wants you to see. The flesh is ready to comply. And when we look at ourselves, we look at our country, we look at our world, everything around us is sending a contrary message. Everything around us is asking us to look at things that are seen. You don't get much traction. You don't get much attention in the world asking people to look away from this fallen world. To look at things that can't be seen. And so if we're pilgrims, if we're going to have help that we need in days like these days, then the indispensable perspective is, well, what are we looking at? We need to look at things that aren't seen. We need to focus on things that are invisible to the unenlightened. Invisible to those that are dead in trespasses and sins. Invisible to those who are taken captive by the devil at his will. Invisible to those whose minds have been darkened by the God of this world. So how do we do that? How do we pursue, maintain this indispensable perspective? Well, can we not just realize, daily get out of bed and realize lies are coming at me all day today. Lies are coming at me from every direction today. We come and understand, if that's the case, then should we not limit our exposure to these lies as much as possible? Now we can flesh that out in a lot of different ways. Church and individuals wrestle with this thing throughout church history. Usually, you can find pendulum swings with regard to fleshly perspectives. Flesh always has an answer to one problem. Maybe it's a legitimate problem in the church or in the life of another believer. I don't want to have that problem. So well, the way to not have that problem is to have the other problem instead. Of course, we've dealt with that at length in the past with regard to legalism and antinomianism and the whole triangle illustration. The path where to walk isn't possible for the flesh. The flesh can produce self-righteousness. The flesh can produce worldliness. And you've got expressions of that corporately in branches of the church. You've got expressions of that individually in the lives of believers. But the fleshly answer isn't the right answer. It isn't how much worldliness and how much self-righteousness do I mix in the same pot to be a balanced Christian. No, it's holiness and humility. And again, the flesh can't bring those together. 
Only the Spirit can bring those together. But we need that in this generation. That's what Daniel and his companions had. They had a humility as they lived in the middle of Gentile empires. And they also had a holiness. And their testimonies were known and they were powerful. And you think about that. The testimony those men had as individuals when the church was powerless. The church was gone. God doesn't need a vibrant, revived church in order to raise a good testimony in an evil generation. He can do that without us. So he dealt with Nebuchadnezzar. And he can also do that through the ones and the twos. But what are we going to be looking at? If we realize the lies are coming our way, we limit our exposure to them as much as possible. But here's a great thought to close with in a New Year's message. If we then by faith limit our exposure to the lies and maximize our exposure to truth. If we would make use of the means of grace. Now I came up, I spent Sunday school doing a lot of reminiscing about different experiences on a topic. I remember almost every sermon. Then the appeal be given afterwards. If you need to be saved, come forward. See how that goes. Next stanza of just as I am. If you need to rededicate your life, then come forward. And then maybe start listing the areas of rededication and people saying, yeah, that's true of me and new commitments made and all of that. But we speak about what are we looking at? This indispensable perspective to help us in the midst of a world that's blind, taken captive by the devil. Well, we speak of the means of grace. I remember, as I said, almost every sermon it would be a challenge. Are you having your devotions? And you could ask for testimonies. The heads would drop. I'm struggling there. I'm not in the Word like I need to be. And how many new seasons to resolve? I'm going to do it. It's the first of the year. I'm going to read through the whole Bible this year. That's a great and worthy goal to do this year, every year. But let me put it to you this way, in this indispensable perspective. What am I looking at? Do I look at reading my Bible? Checking that box on the daily reading? Got another one done. There's one way of having our devotions, and you could say by works. Trying to get rid of guilt. Be able not to feel quite so bad when the preacher asks something about it in the message or in the invitation. It's also possible to approach reading our Bibles. Approach our attendance at the house of God. To approach all of these things we put under that description of the means of grace. To approach them not by works, not as a means of obtaining the pleasure of God, 
but approach them by faith. This is a fruit of right thinking. This is to say, as I open my Bible, Lord, I'm going to be bombarded with lies today. I need some food from Your Word. I need some exposure to truth so that I can be looking at that when I'm walking in the midst of this world that can't see it. So give me some light. Give me some help because I'm a poor and needy soul and I'm surrounded by this other stuff. I need a window of grace to help me today. I need a big infusion of grace on your day to help me through the other six days. And that's a different perspective. That's an indispensable perspective. That's one that recognizes we're strangers and pilgrims. And we need every assistance we can gain to go contrary to the tide. To borrow one of Bunyan's phrases again, against wind and tide. Because the winds and the tides of the ungodly that surround us every day are going the other direction. Because they're not looking at the eternal day. They're looking at now. But we're told in Romans, be not conformed to now. What are you looking at? The things which are seen? It's what the world looks at. It's what causes them to stumble. To stay in their condition of spiritual deadness. Or are you looking at the things which are not seen? As seeing Him who is invisible. It's a different perspective. It's an indispensable perspective. But once you've tasted it, and I know, believer, it's your experience. You look at the world and their blindness is plain to see. It can be frightening how pervasive it is. The truth isn't based on how many people follow it. Truth's based on truth. The God who commands the light to shine out of darkness that has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What are you looking at? What are you going to look at this year? Are you going to look at what everybody else is out there gazing at? Or are you going to see Him who's invisible and walk against wind and tide? Humbly, but pursuing a holy God. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we come today and ask that even some of these familiar phrases might take a deep root in our lives, in our renewed hearts, And that you might hold us back from the winds and tides of this world.
to be those who look not at things which are seen, but things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. They're temporary. They're passing. The things which are not seen are eternal. Lord, enlighten us more and more this year with eternal truth, we pray. In Jesus' worthy name, amen.